0: It's the sound of science. The sound of
1: science. Yes, indeed it is the sounds of science, the sounds of diffusion, and this week it's a bit of a special show. It's the Nuclear Power Special Show. It's a very topical debate in Australia at the moment and uh, we'll be investigating nuclear power, or if you happen to be a particular American president, nuclear power. We'll be looking at alternative uh, energy sources. We'll be looking at waste, and we'll be looking at zombie chickens, believe it or not, but... Before we get to any of that, we're not going to bring you the news first up. We're just going to go straight into nuclear power. Mark, what have you got for us today? Well, nuclear power plants
2: provide about 17% of the world's electricity. Some countries depend more on nuclear power for electricity than other countries do. For example, in France, about 75% of their electricity is generated through nuclear power. But how do these power plants actually work? The secret is in a substance called uranium. Uranium is fairly common on Earth incorporated into the planet during its formation. Uranium-238 has an extremely long half-life, around about four and a half billion years, and is therefore still present in fairly large quantities on Earth today. Uranium-238 makes up 99% of the uranium found on the planet. Uranium-235 makes up about 0.7% of the remaining uranium.
1: So what's the actual uranium that is used in the uh, nuclear power plants? Well, uranium-235
2: is the one that we want. It has the property that it can undergo induced fission, which means if a neutron runs into a uranium-235 nucleus, the nucleus will absorb the neutron without hesitation, become unstable and split immediately into two other substances. This happens in the order of picoseconds, which is 1 times 10 to the minus 12 seconds.
3: Both capturing it and it splitting.
2: Both capturing it and then splitting it, yes. In a reactor working properly, one neutron ejected from this split, so you get two byproducts and a few neutrons, one of those neutrons ejected will be absorbed into another uranium-235 element, and it will split. So Mm -hmm. for each neutron that's given off, it is absorbed into another element and more neutrons are given off, one-to-one. So the reaction sustains itself. The, the chain reaction. The chain reaction. This is in a in a normal reactor, and this process is called critical. If the reaction is supercritical, like in an atomic weapon, if on average more than one of the free neutrons hits another t- uranium-235 atom, then the mass is supercritical. It will heat up because this chain reaction is uncontrollable. It just mm-hmm. keeps going and going and going, producing an awful lot of energy. So in a civilian power station... What we want is just one neutron going in,
1: one neutron coming out, plus a lot of energy.
3: But how do you actually get energy out of that? So you've got this reaction going. What turns into the actual energy?
1: Because it's not actually nuclear bombs going off inside power reactors, is it? That's somehow contained. No. What's given off is
2: a gamma rays and an awful lot of heat. And this heat heats water inside the power plant, heating the water into steam. The steam drives a steam turbine, which spins a generator to produce power. This produces the electricity that comes out of power stations.
1: And that's how most power is generated, whether it be coal-fired, gas-fired, nuclear power. It's all actually driving steam turbines. That's right. In this way, this is
2: very similar to every other sort of power. It's just a
1: different way to heat water to generate steam. Essentially, yes. Uh, Well, one of the the biggest problems is the, the, the waste. What's the story with the waste that comes out of these things?
3: Well, actually, I have a lot of stuff on the waste. So what you have then is a whole bunch of byproducts, this uranium-238 and uranium-235, which is still radioactive, despite the fact that you can no longer use it for fuel. And one of the big misconceptions out there in the public and in, in the media is that the nuclear industry hasn't got a good way of disposing of radioactive waste. And that's untrue. In fact, the nuclear industry has developed all the necessary technologies and procedures to safely dispose of all the wastes.
1: So how, how are we currently doing it? How are we getting rid of these wastes? Are we st- sticking it far underground? Are we not ejecting it into space or in well, the ocean?
3: The safest way is to put it underground, but no one has actually done it yet. It's still um, safely stored in containers. But um, there's actually there's three different types of waste depending on how radioactive it is. Mm-hmm. So you have like, low and intermediate level wastes, which actually comprise of 97% of the volume of the waste produced, but it only stores 5% of the radioactivity. So this is stuff like um, shields and paper and rag that's picked up small doses of radioactivity, and we still uh-huh. need to dispose of it. So we can put them in containers. Uh, some of it doesn't even need shielding because the level is so low, and we can just put them in uh, low... Um, low underground sort of storage areas. What you have though that does need to be taken care of is the high level waste. So this is only 5% of the volume but it contains 97% of the radioactivity. Um, So in some countries they're trying to reprocess this waste in order to get back out the uranium-235. But um, what they do is, at the moment, the most common way of doing this is to take the liquid and put it into glass because glass doesn't let water through or dissolve anything like that. Mm-hmm. So they're actually putting it into the glass and then in this glass you put that inside a stainless steel and a lead and a titanium barrier to stop any of the radioactive um, alpha particles or beta particles or gamma particles getting out of there.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: So, But what's really cool is some guy in Australia in the 70s, a scientist from the Australian National University, came up with this stuff called synthetic rock or synrock, which is a much more sophisticated way of storing radioactive waste, what it does is it, is it incorporates the radioactive element actually into the structure, the crystal structure, of these natural minerals so that there's no way the radioactive element can actually get out at all.
1: So there's no lead in the rock? It just so actually becomes part of the rock? Is, this, is that what you're saying?
3: Sorry, what it's better than is the way of incorporating into glass, which is very common at the moment. So it actually puts it into like into the crystal structure of a rock, and that way there's no way the element itself can get out, which is what people are worried about, like the leaching of radioactive waste. So that can't happen if you put it into the actual structure.
1: I see. Well, that's how nuclear power works. It's a little bit on how it's stored currently and how we might be doing it in the future. Coming up a little later are some alternatives, and we'll also investigate those zombie chickens. was Stereo lab with Interlock. Now, we've discussed nuclear power somewhat. We're going to probably look at that a little bit more in depth next week. But what we'd like to have a look at now is some alternative methods to producing electricity. Around the world, we already have the technology to produce enough electricity for even Western needs, let alone anyone else's. But even Western needs, we already have the technology to do it. The thing that is stopping us is the political will. I have some really interesting articles on alternative energy, and one that I, I picked up just this afternoon was crowd power.
3: Crowd power?
1: Yes. Now, this is generating electricity by harnessing the the tiny vibrations that people make when they're walking down the street or whilst they're walking upstairs.
3: Exactly what vibrations are you making when you walk up the stairs?
1: Well, Lots. <laughs> Uh, according to this study, a person walking upstairs produces eight watts. Now, is this
3: sort of like by your legs moving backwards and forwards?
1: No, just, just the actual energy... Imparted into the stairs? Yes, is approximately <gasps> oh,
0: approximately eight okay.
1: watts. Now, it's a lot more going upstairs than it is just walking along a flat road. But these guys, the facility architects and the director, Claire Price, says tens of thousands of people can pass through urban hubs like train stations during rush hour And she wants to harness that. Does she
3: have any idea of exactly how she'd do that? Would it be a special floor?
1: Yes, possibly. Possibly a, a special floor. What she wants to do is harness the kinetic energy that comes from that, although it's not going to produce much electricity. It's not going to be powering anyone's houses. But what it may do is. The person walking along the street or people walking along the street may provide enough energy to actually power the lights that would illuminate that walkway and things like that. Or the cars and buses that are going past provide electricity so that's more power that doesn't need to be generated. You could power your own MP3 player as you're jogging along Just by walking. (laughs) There's, uh, there's other technology, like putting advanced photovoltaics into your clothes and things like that. And on that subject, in the, the Mojave Desert in next year, they're going to be deploying 20,000 solar collectors.
3: Where's the Mojave Desert?
1: It's in just northeast of Los Angeles. Okay. And what they're going to be doing is harness on the power of the sun, but not via photovoltaic like solar collectors. They're actually going to be using the, the sunlight to produce heat. So these mirrors, these curved mirrors, they're going to be roughly 10 metres in diameter, curved inwards, focusing the, Focus the sun. the heat. That's right. And what that's going to do, is going to superheat hydrogen to roughly around 1300 degrees Fahrenheit. Sure. And this is going to then drive an electric generator, but these 20,000 dishes, stretching over 4,500 acres of the desert, would produce power to 278,000 homes through the day. Don't know what That's they're going to do at night, because they're not going to have any sun, <laughs> <laughs> but through the day, at least.
3: That's like quite a lot of desert to cover up with, the solar.
1: That panels. is the, well, it's desert, so it's not doing much else. So,
3: well, what about all the biosystems bio and
1: Oh, Well, they're going to have a lot more shade than rats. they had before, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, it'll be nice. We might get some. Might not be a desert for much longer. The, the thing is that using this technology, instead of photovoltaics, which only convert about 15% of the sun's energy into electricity, these are going to produce twice that, 30%, directly into electricity.
3: What other alternate energies have you got for us?
1: Matt? Well, there's wind power. Now, wind power cops a fair bit of a bagging because people don't want it in their backyard, Noisy. It's been expensive. It looks really eerie too. There's that. <laughs> and it's unpredictable. You can't predict when the wind's going to blow with any degree of certainty. There's a new wind turbines that they're installing in Colorado, that they're going to be fifty meter blades. Fifty meters. Fifty meters. Yeah, that's how big these these things are going to be. So these things can blow in even the slightest bit of wind. They can produce a fair amount of electricity. This is just a test. test They're they've put it in this particular spot because they get gusts up to 160 kilometres an hour. The, the, the thing that wind power has going for it is that the efficiency of the turbines that they generate has been coming along in leaps and bounds so much that the cost has dropped by about 85% over the last 20 years. So it's becoming more and more promising as, a, as an alternative. But the thing is about all these... Alternative energy resources is that they can't be relied on to produce all of our needs. Obviously, wind is too unpredictable. Solar, what do you do when it's not sunny? There are other alternatives like tides and wave power. We're always going to have tides as long as we have a moon. And if we don't have a moon, there's all sorts of other nasty consequences that would happen. But um, (laughs) tides can be predicted thousands of years in advance to the in like a minute's accuracy. The problem is though, with tidal uh, electricity, is you can only generate it every six hours. I know every twelve hours. There's um, tidal electric, ele- tidal electrical plants in Scotland. a Big, massive island, a massive uh, man-made island. There. What it does is the the high tide um, lifts up a float, and then um, at the at low tide, they can release the release the float. This massive float that um, generates energy that spins a turbine just with the weight of it f- dropping down. Okay, so turning mm.
3: potential energy into kinetic energy or something. Ah, yeah, that's
1: very cool. year 11 physics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's basically, and, but the good thing about that is they can leave it sitting there, and if they have a, because um, the high tide might fall at like 3 o'clock in the morning when no one's using electricity.
3: Oh, they can turn it on when they
1: it's They can right? say, we're going to need it at 7 o'clock when everyone's going to be listening to their radios and everything and watching TV. Listening to diffusion. Oh, that's right. And so they can drop it then when they're going to need the electricity then. They can also use the water to um, produce hydroelectricity. Because as the tide goes out they can actually they can choose to use the float or they can keep it they can catch it in like a big tank and let let it flow out so they can use hydroelectricity at the same time.
3: How much uh, electricity does tidal actually produce? Because I was under the impression that like this doesn't actually produce that much electricity. It doesn't power that many homes.
1: Well a fair bit. But the thing is it's like like all these alternatives, it's like a, a piece. To the puzzle, it's not going to say, okay, we're going to produce all our electricity via tides. Or for a start, you couldn't because unless um, you're going to have a global electricity grid, it's just not possible.
2: Hmm. Well, diversifying your energy sources is actually also a very good thing because it means we can't be held hostage by oil states or, or places that have gas pipes. If a gas pipe goes out, there are other sources of energy. Diversifying is good economically as well as being that's,
1: sensible, scientifically. That's the other thing. There's another. There's another argument for decentralising our electricity supply, so that, um, and it's already happening to some extent, where people are putting power back into the grid from their own houses. So mm-hmm. maybe from micro hydro. Um, mostly, it's from solar, uh, where people have solar collectors on their roof, banks of solar collectors, and the surplus what they don't use goes back into the grid and most countries when you produce a surplus of electricity the it is legislated that the power companies must buy it back from you at the same rate that you buy electricity from them
0: Hmm,
3: that's pretty good
1: yes so you can actually you can actually make money so you can you're also you're producing electricity for yourself for free um if you exclude the cost of buying the, the equipment to start with um well, most of these things pay for themselves within a couple of years anyway. So after a couple of years, you're producing free electricity plus making money from it at the same time. So there we have it. Just a taste of what alternative energies have in store for us at the present and in the near future. But coming up, we've got uh, zombie chickens, I believe. David's going to bring us something about Dawn's zombie chickens. So stay tuned for that one. So- too fast. But coming up now, we've got David with a little bit on hypnosis, all things Michael Jackson and chickens. David.
0: Have you ever seen people clucking like chickens, pretending to be Michael Jackson or doing other outlandish things, supposedly under the influence of a hypnotist? Does staring at a swinging watch really make you fall into a trance-like state where you're so susceptible to suggestion that you think onions taste like apples or that you can see everyone in the room naked? And does hypnotism have anything to do with zombies? The topic of hypnosis is a controversial one. Some scientists charge that hypnosis is simply pseudoscience with no credibility, whilst many therapists use it for medical reasons, and evidence exists for its use in pain relief. People have been pondering and arguing over hypnosis for more than 200 years, but science has yet to fully explain how it actually happens. What we do know is that it's a process by which a person induces an altered state of awareness in another person. Is not the same as sleep, and you do not lose control over your mind or feelings. Despite popular belief, you don't weaken or surrender your will to any other person. You're fully conscious, but you tune out most of the stimuli around you, as you do when intensely reading or driving. In conventional hypnosis, you approach the suggestions of the hypnotist as if they were reality. If the hypnotist suggests that the onion you're eating tastes like an apple, your brain will think that it does indeed taste like an apple. If the hypnotist suggests that you're drinking a beer you'll taste the beer and feel it cooling your mouth and throat. But the entire time you're aware that it's all fake. Like when you're watching a movie. You tune out your normal worries and doubts and become engrossed in what you're seeing. You're also highly suggestible though a hypnotist can't get you to do anything you don't want to do. One theory of how hypnosis works has to do with your subconscious. In your everyday life you're only aware of what's going on in your conscious mind like thinking of the right words to say to that cute girl, thinking about a problem at work, or how much pepper to put in your stir-fry. But your subconscious mind is also helping you make those decisions by doing all the -the behind-the-scenes thinking. It accesses a vast reservoir of information stored in your brain that helps you solve problems. It puts together plans and then takes them to your conscious mind for a decision. When a new idea comes to you out of the blue, it's because you already thought of it unconsciously. Your subconscious also takes care of all that stuff you do automatically, like breathing. Your conscious mind couldn't handle it if you had to think of having to breathe all the time. Also, you don't think through every little thing you do while driving a car. A lot of that is left to your subconscious. Psychiatrists theorise that hypnotism can calm the conscious mind so that it takes a less active role in your thinking processes. In this state, you're still aware of what's going on, but your conscious mind takes a backseat to your subconscious mind, Effectively, this allows you and the hypnotist to work directly with your subconscious. Without the conscious mind to think through everything you do, you may be open to the suggestions of the hypnotist. But what of zombies? Creatures apparently risen from the dead and desperate to eat brains. There have been sightings of zombies across the world, and one theory was that these were people so hypnotised that they had lost complete touch with reality. It may defy belief, but zombies have been shown to exist. However, their condition is the result of some incredibly potent drugs and not the work of a hypnotist. Zombies have been discovered in the Caribbean island of Haiti. They are people who have been almost killed by a mixture of toad skin and pufferfish, which makes the victims soon appear dead, with an incredibly slow breath and a slow and faint heartbeat. In Haiti, people are buried very soon after death, because the heat and the lack of refrigeration makes their bodies decay rapidly. So, zombies have to be dug up within eight hours of the burial, or else they'll die of asphyxiation. When raised from their burial spot, they're made mad by being force-fed a paste made from Datura or Jimson's weed, which breaks your links with reality, and then destroys all your recent memories. So you don't know what day it is, where you are, or who you are. The zombies are in a state of semi-permanent induced psychotic delirium. They are then sold to sugar plantations as slave labour. Thankfully, your local doctor can't put you into this type of state with everyday hypnosis.
1: That's all we have time for on this special edition of Diffusion. Warming the seats on this week's show where Jackie Hayes, Mark West and David Harcourt. If you have any questions on nuclear energy, alternative energy or anything we talked about on this week's show, you can send us an email at diffusion at 2 scr.com. We'll also be reading some of those emails out next week, so stay tuned for that one. This week I produced Diffusion myself up here in the studio in the clouds in 2 scr in Sydney. We're also broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network right across Australia and right around the world wherever you happen to be via our podcast.